When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Ferry. Welcome to another rebroadcast from the RTB Archives. Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. Specifically, welcome to our third episode of Recall This Buck, a short series which is designed to explore the curious history of money and the wealth that underlies it. If you haven't yet heard our episodes with Chris Tizan and Peter Brown, you may want to check them out. So our key question today is simple. What is the nature and origin of the glaring and the growing inequality that everywhere defines wealth distribution in the 21st century, both between societies and within them? And perhaps more importantly, as Philip Larkin puts it, why aren't they screaming? Uh, he's talking about death, not inequality, but I think the point remains the same. That is, what sorts of stories do societies and individuals within those societies tell themselves so as to tolerate such inequality and the poverty and misery it produces, and even to see that inequality as part of the natural order of things? So I think nobody has been more persuasive in recent years in framing and also in beginning to answer those questions than our guest today, the French economist Thomas Piketty, or Thomas Piketty, as I will try to call him when he <laughs> appears. Uh, I'm John Plotz, and my co-host today is Adana Usmani, a sociologist currently working on the origins of mass incarceration. You heard him discussing that terrific project back in episode 44. So hello, Adana. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's great to co-host with you. Um, we will shortly be joined by Professor Piketty, who teaches economics at three universities, I discovered, two in Paris and one in London. He's most famous for his 2013 bestseller, Capital in the 21st Century, which analyzed uh, rising inequality in the modern world by proposing fascinating new ways to understand data on income, wealth accumulation, and the changing value of labor. Uh, in 2020, he followed that thousand-page tome, tome with another doorstop of a book, Capital and Ideology. I'm holding it in my small hand right now, which <laughs> looks at the belief systems that underlie that data and tries to shed light on the question I mentioned above. Where does inequality come from and why do societies naturalize and put up with it? So why aren't we all screaming? Okay. Donner, we've got a few minutes here, um, so I want to do this kind of color commentary style, like announcers before <laughs> the big match as the as the players approach the pitch. Um, what are your expectations for today's conversation? What are you looking forward to hearing from Piketty, and where would you like to press him the most? Uh, well, I, I think it, I, I loved your introduction, and I think in your introduction, I think I see a little bit of the difference that you and I have, and I think in some ways. Tomas is probably on your side, since you summarize the argument, I think very much the way that he puts it, which is that these changes or the lack of change in inequality is a, has a lot to do with the way in which people see the world. And I think my provocation today in today's interview will be that it has less to do 
with the way in which people see the world and more to do with the incapacity of people to remake the world the way they would like it to be. So you're saying that we can, re you're saying that realizing the situation or envisioning the ideological, you know, presuppositions of a society is irrelevant to actually changing it. I think that would be the strong version of the argument. I think the, the, and that version of the argument might apply to something like, let's say, hypothetically, American slavery or something like that. Mm -hmm. Our explanation for the reproduction of American slavery over time might be that slaves accepted slavery, but it might also just be that slaves didn't accept the rule of their slave owners, but were forced to accept it by the fact that they had no means to challenge the rule of slave owners. Uh, the other way, the slightly weaker argument, which I think is still compatible with my general approach, is to say that people might come to accept the rule of slave owners, but in, in, in the end, that's simply a consequence of the fact that they have no ability to challenge slave owners. So it's a, it's a rationalization of their domination. It's a rationalization of their powerlessness, in which case it does no independent explanatory work. It's just the kind of mediating cause between their powerlessness and the stability of the world. But can I just ask you how you have thought about the the set of race and slavery questions that I proposed asking him? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, how would you put how did you put it exactly? I mean, I just kind of wanted to know where the line of causality was, because I feel like, you know, do you understand slavery as producing racial right. ideologies or do right. you think of race thinking as, you know, legitimizing and opening up the door to slavery? Well, I th the way that you just put it there, I think both of those things could be true. They could. They well, could I mean, as in like race could yeah. definitely legitimize, ra racial ideology, I think certainly had the function of legitimizing slavery. I think the question I might ask is in whose eyes and for whom? That's one mm -hmm. of the bigger questions I have about ideology in his book is that he seems yeah. to want to argue that ideology is about convincing rule the ruled, not simply the audience of ideology is the ruled, but for slavery, that seems particularly weird in some ways, right? Are we, is, yeah. it, is it the case that racial ideology really convinced slaves to be reconciled to slavery? I'm not so sure. I'm not sure right. how he would answer that. I think it's, yeah, yeah. I think it's a great question. I guess the other set of questions I have, but they're harder to ask, it have to do with like the long tail of slavery. So in other words, mm. if you think about wealth distribution in the United States and its profoundly racial nature. Like, mm -hmm. how do we link that to the legacy of slavery? Like, do we see it as coming out of the proprietarian ideologies of the 18th century? Or is yeah. it something that's more ongoing in the present day? And if so, what's the account of that? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. But I mean, to the extent that, do, so do you mean something more than simply, is it the consequence? Is it the simple consequence of the fact that after slavery, because of slavery, white people had such a disproportionate share of America's wealth, and then you sort of just run the American experiment forward and that's what continues? Is that kind of the question? Or is yeah, there is specifically an ideological element that makes it difficult to challenge? Yeah, uh, the, question is, the question is how much the ideological or cultural elements are kind of ongoing and sustained on a daily basis in ways that are decoupled from the slavery of the past versus just as you said a machinery yeah, yeah. just trundles forward because right. black people were on the underside of the wealth gap right right i think it's a good question to ask piketty because also because you know cross-nationally this becomes it becomes i mean if it's the case that we see it very difficult see that it's difficult to challenge 
slavery is challenged wealth inequality everywhere, it would seem that America specific explanations might need supplementing because it can't simply be things that are specific to America that make it difficult to challenge wealth inequality because everywhere is having yeah. trouble challenging wealth inequality. Right. Yeah, I mean, so that's, I, I really value that. I think the chapters on Haiti and the way that the debt was calculated, the ongoing debt of slavery, um, you know, the so-called uh, compensation for slave owners, like that that was still being paid off yeah. from Haiti is yeah. just an amazing question. Okay, so I'm going to admit him and we're going to fantastic go. Okay. I hope. Hello. Bonjour. Hello. Hello. Okay. Uh, merci beaucoup et merci pour parler anglais. I, we really appreciate yeah, well. it. <laughs> okay. I know. Thank you so much. So I, I'm John Plotz. I'm the one who emailed with you. And um, and my, okay. colleague, my colleague will ask the first question, I think. Okay. It's a, it's a real pleasure to have you. Thanks very much for being here. We're just going to jump right in, if that's okay. 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 Let's go. So, so one of the things that I really admired about capital and ideology was the way in which you tackle both analytical and normative questions. So you give us an account of the evolution of inequality over time and place, but you also tell us very forthrightly about what we should do about it, about what governments should do about it. I wonder if you could speak just to start a little bit more about the relationship between kind of the descriptive and the prescriptive in your book. You know, this is a book about uh, the history of inequality regime. And, and as you know, one of the main conclusions is that uh, this history is primarily determined by uh, uh, political forces, ideological forces, because all human societies and all, you know, actors and, and those, you know, at the bottom of society or at the top of societies, you know, are trying to give meaning to equality and inequality and to, to make sense of, of the world they, they, they live in. And so it's not, you know, I did not invent, uh, you know, normative perspective on inequality. You know, people have a normative perspective on inequality. And, I, and to me, it would be sort of strange uh, if as a, as a scholar, you know, I would sort of put myself outside of society and just... So, you know, of course, I, I'm trying to have some distance because, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have a job where, you know, I can spend... Uh, days and weeks and months just reading books and, and and working with data. I can look at historical periods which are now very far away from us. So, so it's possible to put a distance. But, you know, I think at some point we, we, we have to, you know, we're so fortunate to... Mm -hmm to do this job as academic, uh, yeah, we have to try to return a little bit, uh, you know, from what we have received. I mean, I love the book in general, but one of the things I love most is your account of the slave societies and their intimate integration into the proprietarian ideology. And I wanted to kind of ask you, a, it's almost a, it may be an impossible chicken and egg question, but it's about slavery as a vital ingredient of modern proprietarian ideology? That is, do you see slavery as a necessary, is, is it a necessary component that makes those ideologies fall into place? Or rather, does the existence of those ideologies enable slavery to arise in the extreme forms that you see in the slave societies? 
again, again, you know, it all happened together, so it's difficult to disentangle. And but I think you know you can imagine uh, um, an industrialization process and a development process without slavery. You know, I think it was not. It was not necessary. It was, you know, you can imagine, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, with a, you know, a world where a different balance of power, both material and ideological, with different uh, state power in in Europe, in Africa, in Asia, in in America, you know, would have led to a, to a form of international economic development with a more balanced uh, distribution of of. Uh, of, uh, of uh, you know, power across society so that, uh, you know, you don't have uh, forced labor going from Africa to, to you know, it, it, it would have been a pretty different world, but, but you know, te te technically, you could have had the industrial revolution with a very different distribution of the gains from industrialization. So, you know, the slaves, instead of being slaves, you know, could have been, uh, you know, Free uh, workers getting uh, higher wages and and uh, you know maybe you know moving to America because they wanted to have higher wages, which would have implied that the capitalist uh, uh, you know of course and the slave owners would have had a much lower uh, living standards and much lower uh, uh, capacities to to accumulate capital for themselves than what they had. But this does not imply that then capital accumulation could not have taken place. Capital accumulation could have taken place in a, in a, in a more uh, collective manner and in a less unequal manner. You know, we know from the 20th century that the reduction of inequality is not is not bad for growth and for capital accumulation because even though people at the top accumulate less, you know, you can have more capital accumulation by the middle class. And, and we also know that more collective forms of accumulation, uh, in starting with uh, human capital, education, else, you know, are, are very important in the long run. And you certainly don't want this to happen only within a very small group at the, at the top. So, in, in, you know, in principle, you can imagine a different uh, 18th century, 19th century, where things would have happened completely differently. Now, this would have require the balance of power between states. So here it's of course it's more than ideology. You know, mm. I, I want to stress in my in my in my you know that in my book, you know, the balance of power in particular between states and the relative uh, power and uh, of of uh, and, and the relative state capacities that develop at different rhythms in different parts of the world are absolutely critical for, for everything that uh, that happened. But at the same time, you know, this balance, this balance of power itself comes with the rise of different ideology, which allows different process of state centralization and state construction to assert themselves and to legitimate themselves. And, uh, and uh, you know, when they come into conflict, the, the, the trajectories and the bifurcations that will be chosen out of these times of crisis are very uh, you know, indeterminate, you know, they, are, they, they do not just depend on a pure balance of power, they also depend on ideology. So anyway, I mean, we can imagine a completely different uh, world that was yeah. when we, we saw, you know, this requires uh, quite a lot of imagination. And in the specific trajectory that was taken, then, of course, slavery uh, played um, 
an absolutely central role. You know, just uh, the, the the vast majority of the cotton uh, uh, used in the textile manufacturing in the yeah. 19th century uh, Britain or European or North American plants, you know, came from uh, from uh, from uh, slave plantation, in particular from the U.S. Uh, South. So, yeah, technically, you know, this was absolutely central to the to the process. So I guess I have one final related question about that that slavery question, which is, you know, as an American, you can't we can't help thinking about the racial legacy here. I know it's different in other countries, but, you know, it, it, everywhere around the world, one of the legacies that slavery has left is racialized thinking. Um, and I just wonder, again, it's a probably hard to answer question about causation, but how race and racialized ideology fits into your sense of both of the legacy of slavery and and how how much we understand current racial configurations as coming out of that slavery configuration of the early modern period and how much you would account for it by other you know by other mechanisms or other means you know i think both in the us but and and more recently in europe you know we have been uh, you know, we, we've tried to forget and we've tried to neglect, you know, how, how important, uh, you know, this legacy was. And, uh, but, 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 you know, I think we have to confront this legacy. And, and you know, there's, I, I try to, in my book, I, you know, I try to show that, you know, there's a, there's a discussion about reparation, which we, we need to have together with a discussion with sort of a more universal perspective on, on economic justice for the future. But we need to articulate the two, the two, the two logics. So in terms of reparation, you know, I think, it, again, it's not only in the U.S. Well, you know, in the U.S., it's striking that you know, U.S. Congress voted in 1988 a law to 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 transfer uh, you know twenty thousand dollars to all uh, Japanese Americans that were still alive in 1988 yeah. and, and that were interned during World War II. Somehow, you know, the African Americans who were uh, subject to segregation until the 1960s, so you know, they were not in jail for one or two years, but sometimes for 20 years, 30 years of their entire life, you know, they, they could not walk on the same street, go to the same school. This is a serious, uh, uh, you know, prejudice and a serious, and, and, you know, it would have made sense in 1964 or in 1988 or today, you know, to have a similar kind of, of uh, a symbolic reparation and and uh, and not only symbolic you know some material dimension uh, and it would have made even more sense of course in 1865 and and as you know you know prom promise actually was made at the end of the civil war that they would receive uh, uh, you know one mule and 40 acres of land and of course this promise was never uh, was never applied but you know france received you know the french state received from uh, haiti uh, you know, huge uh, payment uh, for almost one century yeah. and a half, you know, between 1825 and 1950, in order to compensate, you know, the slave owners. Yeah in France, in metropolitan France, which had lost their property because of the independence of Haiti. And when people in France today say, oh, you know, this is um, a long time ago, uh, it's too late. Well, okay, it's too late, except that, you know, there are expropriations that took place during World War II or sometime even during World War I, which we're still compensating today mm -hmm. and probably rightfully so. But then if you refuse to have a discussion about IT or, or racial segregation in, 
you know, in the US, then you are in, in troubles because then you, you give people the feeling that the, the notion of justice that you're trying to build is not really fair, is not treating, you know, different prejudice and different discrimination in the same way. And I think a big part of the difficulties we have, you know, just to live together today, you know, if you think of the, also, you know, the issue of anti-Semitism, the issue of, of attitude toward Islam, the issues of, uh, you know, um, um, uh, you know uh, racial conflict in the U.S., a, a big part also of this conflict have to do with our difficulties to come with a notion of justice in terms of reparation for past prejudices, whether they happened during World War II or during slavery or during colonialism. Um, and, uh, you know, some people in my country, in France, you know, still believe that, you know, this is a U.S. problem and that in France this is not an issue. But, you know, segregation... It's not only the payment from IT, you know, segregation in the colonial empire or in Algeria until the 1960s was in many ways comparable to that in the mm. US South. And, and, uh, and uh, this is something which people have, uh, have, have, have had a hard time uh, confronting. At the same time, we need to look at all, at the same time, we need to look at the future. And so when I propose a minimum inheritance for all, you know, 120,000 euros at the age of 25, yeah. this is really for all, you know, whether your, your ancestors were slaves or slave owners, everybody will receive 120,000 at age 25. So I think we need to do both. We need to have some specific reparation, uh, sometimes symbolic pedagogical museum, sometimes material for some specific injustice of the past. And at the same time, you know, look at the future of universal uh, 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 redistribution mechanism, that, which will, in practice, benefit a lot to the to the you know people who come from the minority groups, which are which are still you know very much concentrated in the lower socioeconomic groups, uh, 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 you know, of societies, either minority members of U.S. society or uh, you know post-colonial migrants in European uh, uh, societies. But you, you know we 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 need to have both the reparation and the universal perspective on economic justice, and that's the difficult part because very often. People want to hear only about one or only about the other. And finding the right balance between the two is very complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Thomas, as you said a little earlier, one of the really striking things about the book is that the way in which you tell the story of the rise and fall, uh, or fall and rise and hopefully fall again of inequality is centrally about the way in which people see the world, about ideology, about ideological change. Um, so when people see it differently, the world will change. And when people see it, when people simply swallow ruling ideology, the world is not likely to change very much at all. Um, there are two ways in which someone could criticize this argument, which I was hoping we could explore. The one criticism is that this argument overstates the extent to which people, in fact, accept ruling ideologies. For, you know, so I guess the question that I would ask is, what evidence do we have that people, in fact, accept ruling ideologies and have accepted ruling ideologies over the course of history, it could just be that they don't have the means to rebel against their superiors. Under normal circumstances, it would be kind of foolish for slaves to try and overthrow slave owners, peasants to challenge landlords, workers to challenge capitalists. So what evidence do we have that people at the bottom 
of social, political, economic hierarchies that actually accept ruling ideologies versus simply being unable to change the world that they inhabit. Yeah, you know, I think it depends on which uh, situation we have in mind. In the case of slavery, uh, you know, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that slaves ever accepted, you know, the ideologies that they should be slaves. You know, mm. so I think here we, we there's something different, which is the the, the, the mobilization capacities, the risk you take in a case of a revolt. Although, you know, in the long run, for instance, the rise of uh, literacy, uh, family life, and then literacy among U.S. slaves also, you know, facilitated the, the mm -hmm. mobilization capacity. So, you know, the, it's, it's, it's even there, you know, it's important. But I'm, 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 yeah. what, what I... You know, generally speaking, okay, slavery is really the extreme example where you know you don't you don't need to have a very sophisticated uh, counter ideology to be against the ideology of slavery when you are a slave. But in more subtle uh, inequality ideologies, you know, including the, the ternary societies, the trifunctional societies that I uh, that I that I study, uh, you know, before the the French Revolution and before the, the, the 19th century, uh, or the proprietarian ideology of the 19th century and early 20th century, it's it's not so easy to find an, an alternative. I mean, there are alternatives which have been developed, you know, socialist, various brands of socialist and communist ideologies were developed in the 19th century in order to, to, to serve as an alternative to the proprietarian ideology. But, you know, as we now know, Uh, some of these ideologies sort of had a platform uh, that sort of worked and, and some other segments of these ideologies, you know, in, in effect, uh, you know, it, did, it didn't work so, so well. So, so this illustrates very clearly that, you know, the finding a counter ideology is, is, uh, is, is, is usually not so simple. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, that's really what I want to stress in, in, the, in, the, in the book is that I think there's always a tendency in the left, uh, you know, to think, okay, we sort of know what we should do. And the only problem is that, you know, we have sort of a group of very powerful people who don't want this to happen. So all what matters is the, is the balance of power. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying the balance of power is not important. I'm not saying that you don't have, uh, you know, people who are trying to protect what they have. You know, that's obvious. But, you know, the problems that we are trying to solve are not simple. And, uh, You know, we know from history that the pure, you know, balance of power. In you know, in, okay, in 1917 in, in in Russia, you know, the balance of power allowed you know the rise of a, of a, of a completely different kind of state. You know, a proletarian state instead of a proprietarian state. But you know, in the end, this balance of power you know led to the development of a set of institutions and rules. You know, which uh, which you know did not. Uh, Did, you know, did not lead to the emancipation of the working class that they were supposed to lead. So we, we and, and, and I, I don't think, you know, I think things could have happened differently. You know, it seems, you know, a different uh, coalition, a different yeah, group of people, a different, you know, it's, it was not written in advance that it would happen like this. And other socialist movements, you know, when the social democrats in Sweden take mm -hmm. power in 1932, you know, they develop a different kind of institution, ideology, you know, starting from a different uh, starting point, of course. But, but still, you know, well, uh, I, I show in the book, you know, Sweden was, an, uh, well, was, uh, was uh, you know, not a nice uh, egalitarian place to begin <laughs> with. It was an incredibly yeah. inegalitarian place, different from Russia, of course. But, yeah. but you know, it, it was not written from the beginning that things would need to go 
uh, in in such different direction. You know, so political and ideological mobilization was was critical in both cases and will be critical in future bifurcations. Finally, I wanted to ask, as Americans, we feel like we have to ask a, a question for you about how you view the last four years of uh, President Trump, you know, in terms of where the developments are, like whether we see uh, an advent of some kind of new ideology, like a new turn in the neo-proprietarian, or is it just shifting deck chairs? You know, could this be as big as Thatcher and Reagan? Or, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not so sure. Uh, you know, you have to see that from, from a European perspective, we've already seen a little bit something like like Trump when we had, uh, you know, Berlusconi in Italy, probably something yeah. that comes close. You know, it's not the same. But it comes, it, it comes relatively close, you know. In, in, well, except, of course, that Italy is not, you know, the, the superpower of the world. And so it's, it's, it was much less important and we talked much less about it. But uh, and probably in the U.S. you didn't talk at all about it. <laughs> no, we talked about it. <laughs> but in, in France, you know, where we are much closer to Italy, you know, it was quite impressive, you know, when, when Berlusconi came to power. And that was already 30 years ago. And, and, and Italy is interesting because it's sort of, uh, you know, it's very close to us, you know, when we are in France, and at the same time, you know, that's, that's the, the, the level of sort of complete decomposition of the political system, of the post-war political system is in a way much more advanced. Well, advanced, you know, I'm not sure we will all go in this direction, but unfortunately, that's not completely impossible. And uh, and so, so anyway, so what I mean is that, you know, it's, it's not... Uh, uh, you know, the, 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 no, but the, the institutions, yeah, you know, the, the, the federal uh, institution in the U.S., of course, have lots of problems. I mean, the good news is that, uh, I don't know if it's a good news for the U.S., is that European uh, federal institutions have even even more problems. You know, are, are it's not good news. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's clear that the voting system, the electoral system, the way uh, votes are being counted, uh, you know, is, is, is problematic. And this was... Look, in the end, you know, Trump... Was was of course awful and a terrible president, but to me, you know, as compared to to George W. Bush, you know, who, who went to war in Iraq and who caused, uh, you know, I don't know, half a million dead uh, in Iraq uh, after 2003, 2004 in the Iraq War. Um, uh, you know, in a way, Trump was less uh, damaging. At least, from I, I understand that you, for you in the U.S., you view Trump as as a more damaging. But I think, from if we take a world perspective, I mean, he, he, this could have been worse. <laughs> he could have well, if he had used the, the U.S. military to do things, you know, it it could have been worse. So for us in the rest of the world, you know, the fact that he didn't use the U.S. military to do terrible things, you know, after yeah. you know after Vietnam, after Iraq. Uh, the question is, when is the next time that you know America will yeah. use its military to do uh, to do very bad things? And 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 at least Trump was not the answer yeah. to this question. Can I ask a question in a slightly different way, though? One thing Adana and I agree on uh, in loving about your book is the critique of the Brahmin left parties. So I guess I wondered whether you see Trump. One one way to read Trump would be as a vindication of your analysis of the hollowing out of 
the the left side of the American political spectrum. Oh, yes. No, no. Yeah, no, of course. You're perfectly right. No, I think, but, you know, Trump, a little bit like Berlusconi, is, is, is both are the testimony of this sort of conflict between elite, between the intellectual elite and the business elite that I described. In, so to me, that's exactly the embodiment of this. I, I think what makes... What makes Trump possible and what makes it possible for Trump to claim in a sort of quasi-plausible manner that he is against the elite, you know, in, in spite of the fact that he is a billionaire, in spite of the fact, you know, like Berlusconi. Like Berlusconi. So what, what makes it possible is because, indeed, there is another elite, which is not the business elite, the mm -hmm. billionaire elite, which is the PhD elite, you know, which is the... the Uh, you know, the, the intellectual elite, which indeed votes massively for the other side. Now, this was not true, you know, in the 1950s, 60s, yeah, yeah. 70s, where all the elite will vote for the Republican Party yeah. or for the right-wing parties or, you know, conservative party in Europe. So at that time, it would have been completely ridiculous for a billionaire, you know, to claim to be against the elite because his entire political coalition was an elitist political coalition. So it, it, it would have made no sense. So I think what makes Trump possible today is this conflict between elite and, and the fact that the Democratic Party in the US, you know, is, is a, has, has become a party of elite. And I, and I think, you know, partly because the Democratic Party is not doing... A, a lot to 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 you know to to reduce uh, to to reduce inequality and in the end is serving the interest of the educated elite and the children of the educated elite you know uh, with uh, more attention uh, or at least at least as much attention as it is serving the interest uh, of the of the poor mm -hmm. and 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 this uh, You know, I think when I, I read the New York Times and I read, you know, I, I, I don't see a lot of sort of self-questioning uh, about that. You know, I see, uh, you, know, lot, uh, you know, people who are very upset against Trump and the Republican. And of course, you know, I can understand this, especially, you know, these recent weeks. But, you know, I think it's important, you know, if the Democratic Party wants to be able one day to uh, uh, regain confidence of socially... Uh, disadvantaged voters from all origins, you know, whether, which was more or less the case in the 50s, 60s, uh, 70s, you know, whether they are, they are black or white or, you know, whatever their ethnic origin, you know, if, if the Democratic Party wants to regain confidence of these voters, you know, they, they, they will have to, to sort of be a bit less self-confident in the in the idea that, you know, they've done everything right and, and they, you know, they don't have to change anything to their policy platform. And it will take a very, very long time, you know, but, but uh, uh, and, and from this perspective, you know, this election of 2020 is very much, you know, I have tried to put the 2020 in the continuation of my graph for the US for mm. the 2016 election. Uh, and, um, And uh, and it looks you know it's very much in the in the continuation of of this long run uh, uh, you know rise of the Brahmin left and the and the merchant uh, uh, merchant right uh, graphs that I have in the in the book. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much. Okay. We're very well, grateful for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thank I you hope to much. see you in Boston for real. Okay. okay. Well. Right. Thank, thank you very much. That's all. Awesome. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye, -bye. What do you think? I thought he was great. I mean, I thought it was very typical of interviewing 
you know, celebrity intellectuals, which is that he has a lot of stuff to say. He said a lot of it before, yeah. but as he talked, even not necessarily with our own interlocutions, he developed, you know, unexpected angles. So there were many things he said that I, I was pleased to hear. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, what did you think? Yeah, I thought something similar, which is that I think it's always a difficult form of engagement because he comes expecting to give uh, sort of responses that yeah. he's given before. And I think he was yeah. expecting questions like, you know, summarize the books argument. Da, yeah. da, da. Um, my, bro my brother calls it, my brother who interviewed famous people for a long time calls it control F5. You know, <laughs> like you just have the cut and yeah. paste answer that you yeah, just yeah, drop yeah. in there and then you're yeah. done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I thought, yeah, I thought he went sort of furthest from that in the discussion in response to your question about slavery and proletarian yeah. ideology. I thought that was really, that was interesting. Yeah, the, though actually, Adana, I was going to say, I thought the thing that he said about slavery that was the best was the way he continued to think it through in response to your question about change, like whether ideology mm. was pervasive even at the bottom, because he said, okay, he took your point immediately about slavery and mechanisms of control. But then the subtle thing that he added, which I think is totally right, but I've never heard anyone put it in this context, is that like there is actually rising literacy and mm -hmm. rising economic opportunity, at least in the border states mm -hmm. for slaves in the 40s and 50s. Like that's actually part of the story. I mean, mm -hmm. Frederick Douglass is the metonymy for that. Yeah, Douglass yeah. is not the only person who manages to go north yeah. and is able to kind of you know, be part of whatever M Michael Warner calls the evangelical public sphere, you know, yeah, and yeah. That, that's significant, you know. Yeah, that, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, that was interesting. And then, you know, if, I, if we had had more time, I think I would have asked him to make that distinction that he was making between a certain form of dominance, which is sort of like slavery, I suppose, and these other forms of yeah. dominance. Because he seemed to want right. to draw that distinction quite sharply. But yeah. I, I I would wager that it's sort of more a continuum. You know, yeah. I mean, like life in ternary societies is also full of domination. But totally. And also the point about, you know, I actually was, I had forgotten that colonialist is an entire separate ideological structure in his argument. You no, know, there's yeah. like proprietarian, slavery, slave and colonialist. And I think colonial context would be a great way of thinking about that, right? Because mm -hmm. they are mm -hmm. on a exactly. continuum of exploitative property relations, yeah. which is something other than being an you know being owned by another human being for labor, but you're in this position of just like distanced oppression. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I wonder if you might extend the argument the same way. I mean, if you think maybe Gandhi here would be the metonymy for this, that like, that when people in colonialist um, situations of asymmetrical power relation also get access to the, you know, to the weapons of the- I mean, they, absolutely. Yeah. That, that exact same argument, I think, could be made about the Indian nationalist movement. Yeah, I'm Gandhi, Nehru, all of these people, I think, were in some ways products of certain concessions that the British had begun to make. And then also there was the rise of a Indian labor movement after India yeah. started to industrialize under the British in the 19th uh, right. and the 20s. Totally. I think maybe after you can even see in South Africa. I mean, one of the things when Gandhi goes to South Africa, you know, what puts him in a position of power is Indian labor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, so I thought he was, I mean, I, I agree with you that the discussion about slavery was really interesting, but can you, can you just help me parse it as a social scientist? Because I feel like his answer to the question of like, could it have happened without slavery was something like, well, 
theoretically, <laughs> anything is possible. It could have, but it yeah. never did. Is that what he well, was I saying? Think I, I, the way that I understood the argument that he wanted to make is that I thought he was directly answering your question, is there a necessary connection between yeah. propertarian ideology and slavery? Which is, he was replying to say that there is this historical connection, yeah. but there in fact is no necessary connection because you could have imagined exactly the same tenets of property, propertarian ideology yeah. in non-slave context, in, in a world without slavery. But I think right. the evidence for that would be countries that didn't have a slave past. That's, or okay, so that's what I was waiting for. Like, I, I almost wanted to push him, but I was hoping he would just bring up a case. Yeah. Is, yeah. is there such a case? I mean, it's like... Uh, I, I mean, I suppose various European countries, you could try the Scandinavian countries. I was just Germany. thinking that they did have surf relations, didn't they? Or they absolutely they? did, yeah. But that would be different, I think, than right. overseas colonies or slave societies. I think that, that would be... Right. But obviously, there, I mean, one reply could be that there's these ideas migrate transnationally. And so yeah, simple as, <laughs> as discrete national histories with discrete consequences. Right, right. But I, I think that is what he had in mind without saying it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's... Do you find that compelling? No. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess, okay, well, here's where I definitely think he punted. I think he punted on the question of race and like the derivation of the current day forms of racism. Like, I completely agree with everything he said about reparations. I actually thought that it, it wasn't just that it was eloquent, but the directness with which he linked the legacy of slavery to the need for reparations based on existing structural inequalities is exactly like, you know, it, it was very well put and it relates to what you were saying, which is before he came on the line, which is we could understand slavery as the as part of the mechanism that started things going and they just trundled along mm -hmm. under the same mechanism. Mm -hmm. So that makes perfect sense. But what he didn't talk about was the kind of, um, cascading consequences of race thinking, you know? Mm -hmm. like, uh, yeah, no, not at all. I mean, I, I think when you asked that question, you sort of jumped straight to his control F5 policy answer, yeah. which is we need both rep. And I think that's what he's been thinking about a lot. That's There's yeah. a lot of that in the book. Yeah. But yeah, you're right that, it, I mean, in, in his defense, it's not an easy question. No, no, of course not. And it's quite a and, tricky and, and, question. Right. Anything he said, he would get attacked from, you know, 99 out of 100 sides because everybody <laughs> has their own side on. It. So yeah, we get yeah. that point. So do you think that's strategic on his point to just not tackle race except in the in the abstract? Well, it's a very, yeah, it's a very it's a very compelling answer. And if you want to build sort of goodwill about your policy agenda in intellectual spheres, I think, to say we need both this and this. People have been arguing about this and this, but we need both end and i think that in some ways is a compelling yeah way to approach the, the debate um, yeah i like sure. that point well it's certainly put i've been forgotten that it, his amount is 120,000 euros so it's like <laughs> yeah. it's sort of hard to argue with that because you're telling everyone you know i have yeah. a check in my hand for 120,000 euros right. well um, i think it's more than that right isn't it isn't it like it's not a check exactly as much as like a, a wealth like a fund that would then yeah, right. grow right. over time. That's right. That's right. But yeah. I, yeah, I mean, look, I think if I had wanted to be provocative at that moment, I think the way that I would have tried to do that is to say, you know, in in principle, both of these things are really important to demand. But in fact, one of the difficulties that I think he does 
allude to in his discussion of identity politics is that it is if if you agree that politically agitating for reparations will turn off precisely those elements of the nativist working class that have been attracted by the right, then you have a strategic decision to make that is less comfortable than the kind of argument that he made, which is that perhaps then reparations becomes an obstacle to the kind of universalist. He was sort of saying we can have both and it's really easy. Yeah. And that's a really nice answer for an academic. Yeah. But I think a political strategist would reply to say, no, reparations pull terribly with the white working class. And so yeah. they'll run away from our coalition if we foreground yeah. reparations. Interesting. Yeah. So speaking of coalitions, let's talk about the Brahmin left a little bit. What did yes. you, as, as like, I guess, presumptive members, and it's certainly like beneficiaries <laughs> of its policy. Yeah, self-flagellating members of the Exactly, Brahmin right. Left. Well, it's yeah. like that's the defining feature of, of being a member of the Brahmin left, as far as I could tell. You know? <laughs> <laughs> if you ain't self-flagellating, you don't belong. Um, so yeah, what do you think? Does his analysis ring true? Yeah, I mean, I find those graphs in the book some of the most compelling. Me too. Me too. Compelling empirical material that he presents, because I mean, the question that we didn't exactly get Let's to ask. John, tell tell our listeners about one of those graphs. Like, what is it? What is it particularly compelling? Yeah, so the, the the graph that he alluded to at the very end, which he said that he had added twenty twenty two, shows that the correlation between being college educated and voting for the left has flipped over the last sixty seven years of American history. So, controlling for all the other confounders that you can yep. observe. College educated people used to vote more for the right in like the 40s and the 50s. Yep. I can't remember how far his data goes. Um, and now they vote much more for the left. And so th he, there's this evolution then of what he calls the Brahmin left. And he said 2020 sort of continued this trend. And now college educated people are even more likely to vote for the Democrats yeah. than for it. I find that explanation that he, the explanation that he offers, so I find the description profoundly fascinating and important. Yeah. But I find the explanation really wanting in the book. Uh -huh. The explanation that he offers is something like, I mean, and it's partly because this is a polemic or not a polemic, but like a, a, an intervention into a political debate. He argues in the book, similarly to what he said in the interview, that these politicians of the left have abandoned the working class and turned to these college educated voters. And so in other words, it's a choice that political parties have made that they need not have made. Mm -hmm. But I think the fact that this is something that is happening in every single advanced capitalist country, yeah. which is what he shows in the book, suggests that it needs to have, we need a deeper explanation than simply a choice that these sort of conniving politicians have yeah. made. something deeper happening in, in yeah, yeah. these countries. I think that's very fair. Um, well, well, thank you, man. That was, that was great. Um, yeah, I really, really enjoyed that. I'm sad we didn't get to ask him I, I mean there was a moment actually where i thought you were going to jump to your ursula le guin point i know more or less I, making ursula le guin's points himself <laughs> yeah he really was i mean yeah. i i uh maybe we'll put that ursula le guin quote up in the in the in the show notes because that's yeah. definitely I, I yeah i know i wanted to do it i wanted to try to blend le guin and trump into one grand question but i couldn't yeah. get there. yeah okay cool all right cool. Ple pleasure right. doing business with you Yes, absolutely. That was a lot of fun. Recall this book is sponsored by the Mandel Humanity Center. Music comes from Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy. Sound editing by Claire Ogden. Website design and social media from Nye Kim. We always want to hear from you with your comments, criticism, or suggestion for future episodes. 
If you enjoyed today's show, which coincidentally was recorded on the morning of January 6th, 2021, please be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. As well as those earlier Recall This Buck episodes with Chris Dazan and Peter Brown and our conversation with the Donner about mass incarceration, you may be interested in two discussions of the January 6th insurrection, one with David Cunningham, the other with Brandeis history professor Greg Child. From all of us here at Recall This Book, thanks for listening. Listening.